You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right, my family, how are you? Glad you're here this morning. You're back for a double dose. That's really good work, glutton for punishment. Uh, So we are starting a new series today, and I'm excited about it. One big story, eight weeks through the Bible, fairly exhaustive. Um, We're going to talk about the big story of the scripture and what's going on. just to make you aware, this is do- being done in conjunction with Life for Kids. And so if you have kids that are in Life for Kids, when you go over there to get your kid, you're going to notice a life-size model of a refrigerator on the wall. I'm telling you what it is so that you can go, Rachel, that is such a good drawing of a refrigerator because she's been feeling a little self-conscious about it because some people are like, what's that? <laughs> now, on that life-size rendition of a refrigerator... Um, tell, and tell her, be like, that looks amazing. You, you're, you have the skills of an artist. Um, tell her that. Uh, there's papers that are on there, and there's um, one of them is a, a I don't want to get all technical on you. It's a bunch of papers that you're gonna, your kid's going to take home to actually use for you to help facilitate the conversation that you're having as a family during the week around this series. They're doing this, the same lesson that we're doing. And um, it even on the refrigerator shows you where to put them. It even shows you where to put them. So there's no excuses. You can put them there. You can put them, you can show you what else you can do with them. Now, here's another thing that I want to tell you about. And this is cool. I didn't know this, but this is cool. If you go to the Life for Kids Facebook page and put on there pictures of your family interacting with the material that your kids are taking home, you will be entered into a drawing for an overnight stay at Silver Mountain Water Park. Yeah, no. So now you want to disciple your kids all of a sudden. You guys, you're, woo, I'll do it now. We'll talk about the Bible for a water park. All of a sudden, discipleship is important. So do that. Go on there, like the page, put your pictures on there. <laughs> the other thing about it is that if you have kids that are in the Life for Kids ministry, it's important for you to follow that page anyway because there's going to be lots of information that always comes through there. So this will be an opportunity for you to get entered into a drawing. It'll be great. With that in mind, we're going to begin in the beginning. You guys ready to go to work? It's a good place to start. Now, I want to set a little context for this uh, Genesis chapter 1 and what is it and what is it not. And uh, if you'll remember, this is something that we say all the time. My interest is not in trying to figure out what we can do with the passage 2,000, 4,000 years removed from the passage being written. What I'm interested in is figuring out what's called authorial intent. What that means is, what did the author mean? What, What points are they trying to convey? Because my conviction is that we cannot understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. Okay? Now, a lot of people get really excited about Genesis 1 and like, we're going to talk about creation versus evolution and blah, blah, we're young earth and old earth and seven day and lots of you. Blah, 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 blah. We're not talking about any of that. The reason we're not going to talk about any of that is because I do not believe that that was the author's agenda. Now, there's fascinating research done on all that, and there's a lot of good information out there, and that's important for you. You can go study it. There's lots of stuff on the internet. Google creationism or intelligent design. That's the academic way to say that. 
Um, there's tons of stuff out there about that. And that's great. I just don't think that that's what Genesis 1 is talking about. And so for me, what I'm interested in is what is it that Genesis 1 is actually trying to say? And so that's what we're going to wrestle with today. You with me? You don't have to like it, but you got to understand that because you're going to be disappointed if you like, man, you should have talked about creation and stuff. Well, we are going to talk about creation the way that I believe that the author of Genesis intended it for. Now, here's the context. Israel as a nation has been slaves for over 400 years, about 480 years, generation after generation of slavery. They have been beaten down, abused, taken advantage of, only given credit for what they're able to perform and produce, and only valuable if they're able to continue to produce that thing. Please hear me on this. That is a big deal. Because over time, you start to believe that you're only worth what you can produce. Maybe you can connect to that truth in your own world. In fact, in Exodus 6, it says that they were so beaten down because of their cruel bondage that when Moses came to say, God is going to deliver you, they couldn't even accept it. Like they couldn't even believe that, that God would actually, like, no, no. And there's all this mess because they've got generation after generation of being sucked into uh, these other gods and being, uh, they, the other gods have kind of weaved their way into the Israelite culture. And one of the things that my teacher says is that getting Israel out of Egypt was the easy part. Getting Egypt out of Israel was much more difficult because they, they were just intertwined with all these pagan gods and, and all this stuff. And so they come out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea and they go to Sinai and God marries his people at Sinai. In fact, the pronoun used to describe the nation of Israel at Sinai moves from they to she. And that's really important because if they're going to be married now to this God, they don't have a clue what he's like. And so these stories are now being written down to show them what their God is like. They're being reintroduced to this God that delivered them with his outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. If you just celebrated Passover, you remember that. This promise that God gives them, I'm deliver you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. So God brings them out and then he's like, I need you to understand what I'm like. And so he begins to reveal to them through these stories. Now, Genesis 1 is a poem. It's what it is. The genre of literature matters because they're not, this, this poem is trying to illustrate some points about who God is. It's not trying to prove how he created the world. Now, it could very well have been a seven-day creation. There's no, I'm not pushing back on that at all. Could have been. It could have been a lot of different things. And if you need a seven-day creation, perfect, you have it. It's yours, and you are free in Christ to decide how you believe the world got started. But um, God is revealing pieces about himself in Genesis 1. That's what's happening here. And so what we need to figure out is, what can we learn about God from this creation poem? And so we're going to take a look at it and see if there isn't some things that we can understand. Now, one other piece that we need to pay attention to, Hebrew is a very simple language. There's only about 80,000 words in the entire language. Like, you go, well, that's a lot of words. Well, there's like millions of words in English language. 
Um, incidentally enough, here's a side note. Uh, every language has mo the most amount of words to describe the thing that's most important to it. Does that make sense? Like the thing that's most important to that culture, they have a whole lot of words to describe it. Like, for example, in our culture, we have over 80 words that describe money. One word for prayer. In the Hebrew world, they have 30 words for prayer. 30 different words that all describe prayer. Like that, we should pay attention to that. So it's a simple language. If they want to convey something, they don't have a lot of flowery speech to help you understand importance or significance. And so when they want something to stand out, what they'll do is they'll repeat it. And they repeat it over and over and over again. So one of the things we want to pay attention to in this creation narrative is what are the phrases that are being repeated and what can we learn from that? What's God revealing about himself in this? So let's begin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Literally, Bereshit Baralohim, in a beginning. In a beginning, God created. And we go, okay, nifty. No, probably the most revolutionary statement ever written in the ancient world. We're like, whoa, what? I'm sure you're wrestling with the significance. Here's what you have to understand. Every culture in the ancient world had a story about how everything got started. And they all varied a little bit here and there, but there were a couple of themes that were true regardless of the story. One was that some version of the gods is in conflict. And the other piece is that the earth and humanity is birthed out of that conflict. That the conflict of the gods is a result uh, results in the creation of the world and humanity. Therefore, our job, our fundamental job as people is to keep the gods from being angry. Does that make sense? We're here to appease them. Remember when, um, well, we'll get there in a second. Think about, think about this. If we go to the grain God and we offer a sacrifice, and then in this year that we offer this sacrifice, there's a good crop, then the grain God accepted our sacrifice and was pleased with it. But we have to consider this. Like, so next year we want a good crop as well, right? So do we, do we just give the same offering that we did this year? Or would that be insulting to him because we're not acting very gracious for this good crop that he gave us? So we got to give more the next year right? To make sure. And if, if we give a sacrifice to the grain God and then a drought comes or um, the locusts come and destroy the crop and, and things don't grow, well, then obviously the God didn't accept our sacrifice. And the problem is we didn't give enough. So what we have to do is give more. So if things go good for the pagan gods who need to be appeased, we have to give more. And if things go bad, we have to give more. And this is an escalating problem year after year after year, which is why there are so many of the pagan gods that ultimately end in some form of human sacrifice. Think about this. When Abraham is asked by God to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, one of the interesting things is, is you never see Abraham ask how. Of course, this is what the gods do. This is what all the gods do. And the thing that blows him away at the mountain 
when he doesn't have to sacrifice his son is not that God lets him off the hook. It's that this is a God who actually provides. This isn't a God who demands appeasement. This is a God who provides. That's the name that he gives God. He's so moved by this revolution that we have a God who provides for us that he gives God a new name. That's the part that blows him up because we're not used to this kind of a God. This is a God who isn't angry. This is a God who isn't frustrated and there's no conflict. It's just, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. This is how it began. He wasn't mad. He just got it started. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Pay attention to that because that's odd to us. Evening and morning in a day. It's not how days go. Days start in the morning and go to the evening, right? And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And I'd love to talk about that phrase, and it was so, another repeated phrase in this narrative. I don't have time to do it today. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there's that phrase again, Pay attention to it. The second day, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Say tov. This is the Hebrew word for good. It was tov. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to his kind and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was that phrase again. And there was evening and there was morning. And there's that phrase again, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And here's something crazy. God separates light and darkness in day one, doesn't create the sun and the moon until day four. Figure that one out. And God said, let them set them in the, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give the light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there's that phrase again. And there was evening and there was morning. And there's that phrase again, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw... It was Tov. There it is again. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening... And there was morning, and there's that phrase again, the fifth day. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, even a duck-billed platypus, which my assumption, this is my theory, is that that is the last thing that God made, and he had a bunch of leftover parts, and he just stuck them together. <laughs> He's like, let's try that. That'll be fun. <laughs> and God saw that it was tov. Here's that phrase again. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, uh, the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. By the way, he did not give man permission to have dominion over one another. And that's important because anytime anyone tries to assert dominance over another person, you're wrong. It's not what Genesis 1 gives you the right to. Just a thought. So God made man in his own, and he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its, in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And, every, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was? Ooh, no. This is important. It was Tov Meod. In the words of the great philosopher Nacho Libre, <laughs> it was real good. <laughs> this was very good, muchly good, uh, exponentially better would be one way to understand it. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. And of course, we know that on the seventh day, God rested. Now, because it was enough. Like God looked back and he's like, oh my me, this is amazing. <laughs> this, that's <laughs> what he said. It's, it's in the subtext. So there's some, a couple of things I want to pull out here that I want us to pay attention to that I think are particularly significant. One is this, this repetition of evening and morning. It was evening and it was morning. And we visited about this before. We know that in the Jewish world, their day starts with sundown. It goes sundown to sundown. Like we know that and that's good, right? But why is that so significant? Well, it's significant because God wants your day to begin with rest, God's not interested in us constantly trying to grab a break from our production, from our work, from our effort. He wants you to know that your day begins with rest and you work out of your rest because then your work can be worship. Now, think about this for a second. These are a group of people who have been slaves for generations. Their only value has been in their production. God says, no, stop worrying about production. It's okay. You're good. 
I got this. Rest. Take a breath. Relax. The other thing that I think is particularly significant is this phrase, it was good, it was good, it was good. Like what we see this story doing is reaffirming the goodness of creation. And if we're not careful, if we let our sin drive the story that the Bible's trying to tell or that God's trying to, drive, to tell with our life, what we can do is begin to tell the story as if everything is bad, everything is evil, everything is awful, it's down, it's yucky, everything. And we got to evacuate this rock and get to some place better. What God does in the creation narrative is reaffirm the goodness of creation. I am a good God who created a good world full of good things and created you, Tov Meod. Real good. Like that has profound implications for us. There's some things that this teaches us that I think are simple but significant. Number one, it teaches us that God is good. God's not angry. He's not mad. He's not disappointed. He's not frustrated. He's not up in heaven going, oh my word, like what am I going to do next? I've, how, how am I going to deal with these people? I keep giving them good things. They keep messing up. I don't know what I'm going to do. God is never in that position. He's never in that position. God is not reacting to you in the story of this world. That's so significant. God is for me. He's for you. He's with you. God's not off somewhere. He didn't kind of take the world and make it and spin it out into the universe and step back and go, I'm going to watch that function. Like God is here. Like he's here. He's, he's with us. Like God is fully present everywhere all the time. Like even in your really bad mistakes, like God is there. He's there. He's with you. And he is for you. And listen to me, we're going to talk more about this next week, but God is not holding out on you. That's what this story reaffirms. And these four truths help us understand why we stick in a job when we have a lousy boss, why we do it well and we don't talk bad about our uh, fellow employees or our managers or our bosses. We don't participate in that kind of thing because we have a God who's not holding out on us. This is enough. It's okay. It's why we stay in marriages that we don't want to be in sometimes. It's why we stay connected in relationships that we would otherwise reject. Now listen, it's also why in our marriage we treat people a certain kind of way. So if you're trying to have dominion, you're worried about having dominion and dominance, you're missing the whole creation narrative. You're missing everything that God is trying to teach us. So if you're sitting in this room as a person who takes advantage of, manipulates your spouse, you're missing the goodness of God. Like you're wrong. You're in sin. That's sin. You have no boundary, no permission to treat another human being like that at any level. If we really believe that God is not holding out on us, then we have the freedom to chill out and lift others up. It's when we feel like we need to tout our own successes. We need to push our own agenda. Look, look at me. I'm awesome. I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Like when we take that posture, that's when we start to 
really hurt the story that God's trying to tell through your life in the world. The invitation of Genesis 1 is to rest in a relationship with a God who is good and who is enough. This is a God who knows exactly what you need before you need it and will give you every good thing. And sometimes, and this is so important for us to understand, sometimes we tell the story of who our God is well because of the victory that God brings in our life. And sometimes we tell the story because of our faithfulness. Both of those will be part of your testimony about who God is in in your life. Let me tell you why this matters to me. My wife and I have four children, and um, we have three biological and one adopted. Here's, Here's how that played out. Our first child was our daughter, Carter, who was standing over here worshiping this morning. Uh, just sings like an angel, you know. Um, I can't even. My, my wife and my daughter are standing here worshiping side by side. I just have to stand and go, I'm moved. Like, I'm, I, I have get flustered. I can't, I'm like, I can't have a hard time worshiping, be honest with you. I told my wife when my daughter was born, uh, like she was great. She was super simple, easy kid, like even as a little kid, toddler, the whole, but she was great. And I told my wife, if, if I could guarantee that all of our kids were like her, we'd have 10 of them. <laughs> then we had two boys <laughs> and I got fixed. Like that is a true story. <laughs> no more, no more, no And and I'm firmly convinced that my wife and I are done bringing our genetic code into the world. Like, we have damaged the world enough. (laughs) No, we have awesome kids. We really do. We have great kids. But God wasn't done with our family, even though we felt like we were done. And so through a really long story, we, um, we adopted a girl from China. And the reason we adopted a girl from China is because every fourth child born in the world is Chinese. And statistics are important to us. I mean, <laughs> kind of, that's kind of why that and, you know, God told us to. Other than that, you pick which one weighed out more. Here's the thing. There's a lot of ways that my amazing, wonderful adopted daughter has changed my life for the better, like I understand what it means to be an adopted child of God. And, and people, people wrestle with this, like, you know, when you adopt. And if you've never adopted, you'll, you'll think this. And if you have adopted, you'll know that with the wrestling match that I'm about to uncover here. You wrestle with this in the adoption process. Can I, can I really adopt? Can I love an adopted child as much as I love my own kids? Right? Like, we wrestle with that. Because, because here's the deal. Like, I love your kids. Um, for a little while. And then, you know what I mean? Then you got there because they're your kids. They're not my kids. Here's what, here's what adoption has taught me. Like the Lord found a different way to get her here, but she was never not my child. She was never not my kid. And what I love about her story is that while the world has a lot of different ways that they would like to portray her story, the story that God is telling in her life is you 
matter and you are going to know me and you are going to make a difference in this world. And here's why that matters for me, because as I tell the story to her of Genesis 1, and we go through it, hey, day one, God created, separated light and darkness, and what did he say? And she goes, it was good. And there's this, each, as we go through each day, there's this building sense of anticipation because she knows what's coming. And I say, when God created man and woman, what did he say? Real good. And then I say, Ellie, what did God say when he made you? Perfect. Here's the thing. There's a lot of different ways that she could understand her story. But God took her story and made it perfect. And because of that, everything's different for her. Listen to me. Genesis 1 tells us about a God who is good, he is with me, he is for me, and he is not holding out on me, and that changes everything about everything. For all of us, maybe you understand the, what exactly what it feels like to feel rejected, to feel abandoned, to feel mistreated. God's story for you is good. God's story for you is good. The question is, will you trust it? And the problem for us isn't believing the theory that God wants to tell a good story with our life. The problem for us is letting go of the lies that we hold on to that are the things that we actually make decisions by. And that's the very thing that God's goodness should set us free from. So we're going to move towards the Lord's table like we talked about freedom in the cross during our worship time, right? Like there's, there's freedom in the cross, there is. God is so good that he has made this way out for you from the lies that the world is trying to get you to own. If you're new with us this morning, we have an open table. And what that means is uh, anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to take communion, but we want you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together, okay? So uh, while they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications. Now, here's the thing. When we have a conversation like this, the Holy Spirit can take it in your life in a lot of different directions, and that is okay. Wherever the Lord is working you over with that, like, yeah, I need to believe this truth, or I need to let go of this lie, wherever that lie is in your life, that is okay. That's okay. These are just a few implications that we thought were particularly important as we were working this through. So, number one implication is that the story is good. It's a good story. The story that God's telling with your life is good. So Christians, you should never be telling a story of misery and awfulness and my life is only bad all the time. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we walk around fake either because sometimes bad stuff happens and it hurts and that's real. But we can see that through the lens of the good story that God's telling in this world, that this is a good world full of good things. And when we see the beauty in that, then when trials come, we don't have to lose our peace over it. Second thing that I want to point out is that you're not a mistake. Genesis 1 teaches us you're not a mistake. And that's important. Because a lot of us 
grew up believing for whatever reason, because mom and dad were too harsh, or because somebody said something on the playground and it marked me, or because uh, there was this thing that happened when I was this age, and whatever it is, a lot of us grow up believing that we're a mistake. Some piece of us is bad, it's wrong, it's evil, it's yucky, it's gross. Listen, Genesis 1 tells you you're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. You are what God made you to be. And you need to embrace and own that. Third implication. In all of creation, God sees you as tov meod. Like you should stand in front of the mirror every morning while you're getting ready and be like, tov meod. Look at this. Like bring, if you're married, bring your spouse in and be like, hey, check it out. Tov meod. What do you think, baby? Tov meod. Bring your kid. No, don't, don't bring your kids in. They'll be like, gross, dad. Put a shirt on. <laughs> There's so many places my mind just ran to. Uh, Maybe that's the trauma that made you believe you're bad, is that your kid made you say, you, when you were a kid, you, your dad made you say he was tov meod. Like, maybe. I will say this. I've told this to my family before. I didn't save for college uh, fun for my kids. Uh, I saved for therapy for them because I knew, I knew that they were going to need it. But in all of creation, God sees you as very good. Like, you're not a mistake. God's, the story that God's telling with your life is good. You're not a mistake. You are Tov Mayod, and that is what God says you are. No matter what anybody else says, that's what God says you are. And therefore, the last implication is simply this. We are a church that reaffirms the truth of who people are. Not the mistakes, not their past. There are enough places in this world that will let you be reminded of that. We are a place that calls people to the truth of what God says they are. And that has to be our primary modus operandi. It's one of the reasons why I love taking communion every week because it's this reminder that God is telling you, look, there's no place, there's no, there's no space I won't cross into to let you know how much I love you. Like, I, I'm so for you and there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to change that. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And you created this world and us full of potential, full of goodness, full of this, like, this image of you that is waiting to be unleashed in the world and it seems like we get so sucked into believing the lies that the world has tried to impose on us and we forget this amazing potential that you put in us. Lord, it is so easy to get distracted. 
God, thank you for communion that is this unrelenting call back to the fact that the way that you feel about us will not change. Thank you for Genesis 1, and thank you for telling a story, God, of how good you are and how much you love us. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.